stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to the 248th episode of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, your host. Our topic today is clinical trials, benefits and protections. A clinical trial is medical research using human volunteers. For example, a clinical trial may give a drug to volunteers who have high blood pressure to see whether their blood pressure drops with the drug. Besides drugs, clinical trials may investigate medical devices or medical procedures or changes in diet or other things that can affect health. Clinical trials may compare a new drug to an existing drug or compare a new drug to a lookalike drug which actually contains no active ingredients, and that's called a placebo. When a clinical trial involves a new drug or device, no one really may know whether it will be helpful or harmful, or whether it will be similar to existing drugs or devices. And all of that is why there have to be protections. And there are times when family caregivers and their family members are approached about clinical trials, all of which is why our topic today, clinical trials, benefits and protections, is so important. To discuss it, our guests are Karen Arts and Linda Bennett. Karen is the Director of Business Development, High Impact Clinical Trials Program at the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research in Toronto, Canada. She's also the Director of External Initiatives for the Canadian Cancer Clinical Trial Network. Her work focuses on collaboration in Ontario's clinical research. She holds Master's and Bachelor's degrees in Science and Nursing, She has 36 years of professional experience in oncology and clinical research in the pharmaceutical industry and the public health system. She's a founding member and chair of the board of directors of the Network of Networks, which fosters collaboration among stakeholder groups to strengthen Canada's research. Linda is the executive director of the Canadian Rheumatology Research Consortium. She has an undergraduate degree in science from the University of Toronto. She's previously worked in family planning and in HIV AIDS education and harm reduction programs with the Toronto Department of Public Health and community-based clinics. 
After coordinating clinical trials, she joined the biopharmaceutical industry where she held a variety of roles in clinical research. Since 2004, she's managed the day-to-day operations of the Canadian Rheumatology Research Consortium, a national network of academic and community rheumatologists that conducts clinical trials in arthritis. So welcome to the show, Karen and Linda. Thank you very much. Okay. Let me start with you, Karen, first of all. Please tell us more about your career and also your experience, any experience you have with family caregiving. caregiving. Karen? Thank you for inviting me to speak on the show, Gordon. Um, as you stated, I started my nursing career in uh, a long time ago, in 1976. Originally, I am from the Netherlands. And I immigrated to Canada in 1982. Um, at that time, I started pursuing a career in um, in nursing, and uh, I've worked in nursing for a long, long time in many different capacities. Um, my roles have ranged from being a staff nurse to being a nurse educator. I've worked as a nurse manager. I've worked as a clinical research coordinator. I worked as a manager, and currently, I'm working as a director in the clinical trials program at the Ontario Institute of Cancer Research, all even though some of those roles were, are not directly um, the traditional nurse's role of looking after a patient in the hospital, all of them have that as a central theme. And so throughout my career, um, I've, I've worked with families and with patients and uh, believe that it's very important that we have them central to everything that we do. And so maybe I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Linda, same question. Please tell us more about your career and your experience with family caregiving. Sure. Um, I did actually study nursing for a couple of years before uh, transferring to um, science in, in uh, my undergrad at U of T. And so I think the nursing um, exposure opened some doors for me where I worked in, in settings where I uh, counseled families and, and individuals uh, around uh, a number of things and provided uh, education to them. And so from there, I actually coordinated a couple of clinical trials and thought, oh, this is kind of interesting work and uh, moved into the pharmaceutical industry. And I guess in total, I think I've spent about 25 years maybe working in and around clinical research. My current role certainly isn't hands-on. It's really uh, more strategically focused on how to make the site level and country-wide uh, collaborations more effective. In terms of caregiving, I have had actually some personal experience um, in caregiving, not only my early employment uh, roles, but in my personal life. I participated in a couple of um, quite structured care teams for friends that were um, ill and, and dying and trying to stay at home for as long as possible. A few years ago when my children were still quite young, both of my parents had cancer at the same time. Uh, the day my mother returned home from her surgery, my father was unexpectedly admitted to hospital. And while my mother's care uh, was uh, really very nicely coordinated, she had a, an exceptional uh, medical team and her, her illness sort of progressed and, and was um, managed. My father's health issues were broad and I did need to advocate quite a bit on his behalf. And then in December of last year, one of my very dearest friends was diagnosed with metastatic cancer. And her treatment options are very limited uh, based on the kind of cancer she has. And so she's, in fact, participating in a clinical trial. 
And so I've been um, sharing in that experience with her, and every two months she returns for her assessment, and we all hold our breath until we learn whether or not she can continue on her drug. So, so far, so good. She's about nine or ten months. But it, it's given me a different um, vantage point, I think, to look at clinical trials. Karen, please... Um Tell us about your work at the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research and how it relates to clinical trials specifically. All right. <clears throat> the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research is also known as OICR. Um, has been in existence since about 2002, and it's an uh, innovative research institute that works to um, bring discoveries all the way from the lab and the bench to the bedside and into the to the clinic. So it's truly translational. It's dedicated to, uh, to research on the prevention, early detection, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And we're funded by the Government of Ontario with different programs that help us achieve our goals. And one of those programs is our clinical trials program, uh, which is the program that I work in. So the focus of my work at OICR is really to collaborate with Ontario clinical research sites, so the sites where uh, cancer clinical trial studies take place, and with the sponsors or the people responsible for the conducting the study. Um, I, I collaborate with them and work with them to ensure that the process of conducting clinical trials runs smoothly, that they follow the rules, and that we can achieve enhancements and efficiencies in infrastructures and processes ultimately to improve the uh, the care and the benefit that patients may receive. And so I said this a few minutes ago, um, central to all my roles is the in, in the past and now is the patient and his or her caregiver or their circle of uh, significant others. And I believe it's really important that we ensure that they receive not only the best care possible, but that they're also that they're not harmed and that we uh, partner with them in the care that we provide. I think there's I think we would all probably agree there's clearly room for growth in that aspect. So programs such as this one, Gordon, to um to clarify what some of these things are, I think are very important and they help us do better. And within the OSCR right now we're building an infrastructure program for clinical trials in Canada to really um, improve the way things are done, to reduce duplication and ensure that things are done efficiently so that patients and their family benefit and things are, will be done better. Right. Great. Linda, please tell us about your work at the Canadian Rheumatology Research Consortium and how your work relates to clinical trials. Sure. Um, we call uh, the consortium CRC. We've um, uh, abbreviated it. It's, it's quite a mouthful. We'd name it differently now if we had it to do over again, I think. <laughs> but it's, yeah. um, it's a network of rheumatologists, as you said earlier. They conduct clinical trials in arthritis. Individually, they participate in all types of research um, so that they can better understand the disease and how to best treat it. Together, through the network, they conduct some of their clinical trials of, of new drugs or new therapies. Um, and, and my role is in that particular context. And so when they established CRC, their goal was to try and raise the profile of Canadian researchers in the global environment and try and enhance the research landscape here in order to attract more clinical trials to Canada to benefit the, the people with arthritis that live here. 
And so my role with CRC is to sort of provide a point of contact for those collaborations with the biopharmaceutical industry and to champion some of their overarching um, strategic goals, the network strategic goals. And I'll talk a little more later about some of the specific challenges that we, we face in rheumatology, but our network has certainly been able to raise awareness of some of the barriers to trial participation that exist in the arthritis uh, trials environment and to try and identify solutions for some of those issues. Um, Some of the problems we face are clearly arthritis specific and the group is working to make some changes in those areas. For example, we have a, a relationship now with the arthritis consumer experts and it's an organization that educates and empowers people with arthritis to help them take control of their disease and improve their quality of life. And this relationship, we feel, will be instrumental in our efforts to sort of share arthritis research information with the broader arthritis community and engage them a little differently in in terms of how research is done here. And then the other issues, and these are sort of particularly uh, related to trials operations, the nuts and bolts of how how you do things. Karen was talking a little bit about that. They're broader than just our own researchers, and so we've forged partnerships with other groups to work jointly on those problems. And and it was our early collaboration with OICR and, and Karen that led us um, uh, as a group to establish the network of networks. And so we now have these forum, this forum within which we can share information and tools and, and receive uh, information and tools from others that are, are useful in the conduct of clinical trials and to build new resources that we all need but do it once instead of each of us doing it individually around the country. And then by collaborating in that way, we drive, uh, we drive a standard a right. benchmark and how these things are done. <laughs> right. Now, it's talking of standards, we have to work to time, so it's the time when we have to take a short break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guests are Karen Arts and Linda Bennett. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Karen Arts and Linda Bennett. Our topic is clinical trials, benefits and protections. Now let's talk about the benefits of clinical trials and the challenges in creating and delivering the benefits. Karen, starting with you, please tell us more about clinical trials, why they're important and what their greatest benefits really are. Karen? Okay. Well, I guess there's a few components to that question, so I'll start off by just talking just very briefly about what clinical trials are. Gordon, you uh, mentioned some of the aspects uh, at the beginning of the show. Um, Clinical trials really are research studies involving people, and they test new ways to prevent, detect, diagnose, or treat diseases. And different types of trials uh, exist, and so the focus of the trial based on prevention, screening, treatment, and diagnosis determines how the trial will run and what an investigator may be looking for uh, to ultimately improve outcomes for patients. The other thing that uh, patients or caregivers may notice is that trials are conducted in steps or phases, and they range from, they're called from phase zero to phase four, but it really is a way to indicate that after uh, methods have been tested in the lab and on animals, there has to be a time where they're being tested in patients. So phase zero is the earliest phase where we, for the first time, test new treatments or devices or drugs in human beings, and we do that in a protected and controlled setting so that we can monitor um, and, and make sure that no bad things happen to patients. And then from there, we slowly build on that experience to improve our knowledge, to monitor patients, to get to the stage where we're confident that um, whatever we are testing will be of benefit and is safe. And when we reach that point, the uh, regulatory body, such in Canada, is called Health Canada, they will um, then follow the, um, the, the trial and the, the results and they will review them and then decide whether the drug or device or treatment may be sold and prescribed to patients. So that's sort of what clinical trials are in a very high-level overview. If you, you ask me what, um, what some of the benefits are, and I personally believe that clinical trials are very important and they have some significant benefits. So, for example, people take part in clinical trials. They have an opportunity to contribute to science and to the knowledge being developed about diseases and to help uh, the development of improved treatments. So not only are they helping themselves, hopefully they also help other patients in the future. They also receive state-of-the-art care from experts and from a research team of professionals that's been established to ensure that the patient safety and well-being is safeguarded. Um, participants have access to new... These treatments are not available outside of a clinical trial yet. They're promising new interventions. So it's sort of a cutting-edge 
uh, innovative new approach that uh, they have access to. And we'll talk uh, in a little bit about some of the challenges are. One of those is the length of time that it takes to develop a drug. So these, the benefit is that they have early access. The intervention being studied may also be more effective than the standard therapy. So if it's effective, trial patients may have the first, may have the the benefit of being the first one to benefit from the actual uh, right. treatment. Karen, I'm just going to stop you there because I want to go into the next question with Linda and we'll come back to some of the things you're, you're, you've just been talking about because they're very important. But Linda, just to illustrate in a way what clinical trials do, can you tell us what impact clinical trials have had in rheumatology, the study of rheumatism and its related things? What has been the impact? Well, uh, you know what, this is actually, uh, I think, quite an um, incredible story. And so, as you know, uh, being a clinician, that arthritis is a family of autoimmune and musculoskeletal diseases, more than 100 separate conditions under that umbrella. CRC's activities are focused on um, five different types of arthritis, with the bulk of our trials activity really being focused on rheumatoid arthritis, or RA. And so, you know, my comments here are about um, RA uh, specifically. And so it's a, a disease in which the body's own immune system attacks its tissues, causing irreparable joint damage. It affects, I don't know, just under 300,000 uh, adult Canadians. I work really uh, closely with the chairman of CRC, Dr. Ed Keystone, who... Um, Many in the arthritis field have heard of, heard about, and we've had a number of uh, conversations about really the transformation in care that he's seen during his career as a rheumatologist. He's been at this for quite a number of years now, and he tells me that early in his career, the rheumatology ward in his hospital had about 40 beds, and three-quarters of those contained patients with rheumatoid arthritis. He said these patients had significant joint damage, disability, uh, substantial pain, and were deteriorating. And he said not only was their quality of life very poor, but they were at risk of early death due to infections because they were bedridden and heart disease as a result of the chronic inflammation. Rheumatologists had three drugs in their treatment arsenal. And the focus of treatment, he said, was purely symptom management. And so when he talks about this, he recalls just how devastating it was to see his patients in such distress and to really be able to to not impact the disease in a meaningful way. So fast forward, over the last 15 years, the management of RA has changed dramatically. So research has completely changed the outcomes for patients with this disease. They have new approaches in treatment and then new medications. And it's now possible for them to achieve low disease activity or even put the disease into remission. And so what did the research tell them over the years? It's not all about the new therapies, although they play really a substantial role. They learned that early diagnosis and then aggressive treatment are both critical. And these two together increase the likelihood of remission. They begin to use, uh, began to use some of the older drugs very differently. So higher doses of methotrexate, for example, were way more effective. And they started using drugs in combinations. They found they worked better when combined versus working uh, with them individually. And then finally, the new classes of drugs, the biologics have come along that provide relief to patients that are failed by the conventional therapies. 
And so, Linda, you know, I'm going to stop you there. Mm-hmm. This is a great story. Time is against us, but that's a story of great success. It's impressive. That's great impact. Karen, I want to ask you to carry on with what you were saying before. That is, the greatest challenges in creating and delivering the benefits of clinical trials, and how do you overcome these challenges? Greatest challenges. Karen? All right. Well, I would say that one of the greatest challenges all of us that work in clinical trials face is the lack of awareness of what clinical trials are and how to become involved. There's a, I would say, a lot of fear of the unknown and the perception that science and doctors and nurses use people as guinea pigs in clinical trials. And that's despite the fact that the field is really very heavily regulated to ensure that the safety and well-being of patients is protected. So I would say that's probably challenge number one. Another challenge I mentioned sort of under the benefit component is that the length of time it takes to complete a study is it's very long. It goes into years, sometimes more than 10 years. And so results may not be known for a long time. So if we could speed things up, we could provide treatments and drugs, et cetera, to patients faster. And, um, they, you know, that's a very important component. Um, of course, there's also concern uh, that there is harm associated with, with uh, clinical trials that may be potential risk. And, um, there's, you know, it's important to protect patients uh, around that. Um, okay, what I'm going to do is to really go back to something that Linda was talking about in the last segment. Um, You mentioned that there are unique challenges in rheumatology research. What are those and, and how do you overcome these? Well, you know, we do have some unique problems in rheumatology. Uh, I think, you know, I, I started uh, with the network in uh, 2004 when it when it was uh, launched, and they've conducted, I think, well over 100 trials in the last nine years, uh, most of these in RA. And so now we have many therapies available to people with rheumatoid arthritis. Most of those are, are accessible. They're covered under government formularies or private insurers. And so this has resulted in two very distinct challenges for us. Clinical trial designs haven't actually changed over the years in RA. They haven't kept up with how medicine is practiced. So patients in Canada and in other countries where there's access to health care and medications no longer meet the inclusion and exclusion criteria for clinical trials. So even if they needed a tra- treatment change and an appointment and wanted to consider a trial, very often they, they uh, are excluded by um, uh, how well they're doing. And then secondly, with so many treatment options, patients are less interested in participating in clinical trials. They don't necessarily need access to trials at this point in time for the treatment of their disease. And so the challenge that creates is it's difficult to do these trials here, and they're now migrating to other countries around the world, and our clinical trial sites are closing their doors. So of concern is that the current drugs do lose effectiveness over time. Dr. Keystone says it's at a rate of about 10% a year. And so at some point, it will become more critical to do that work here so that the patients have access to treatments, but we won't have the established sites in order to do the work. And then the other piece of that, and it's a very, very important one, and I'm sure as a clinician you can identify with this, we worry about the fact that clinical trial conduct gives physicians experience with these drugs. And without that experience, you know, we don't have the expertise here 
there may not be the comfort to use these new products when they're available for use here if they haven't been developed here. And I think, you know, clinical trials participation on behalf of, of the PIs, it drives other research activities. They use that infrastructure to participate in disease surveillance programs, uh, to run their own investigator-initiated research, to drive some of the other research questions that aren't necessarily um, uh, funded by uh, pharma. So our goal has been to try and raise awareness of this issue and to advocate for changes in trial design so that studies better reflect the patients here. You know, you want the clinical trials that you do on drugs here to actually reflect uh, the population that they will be used to treat at some point. And maybe in rheumatology, we need to rethink what kind of trials we conduct here. Maybe the focus for our country isn't necessarily trials of new therapies, but other types of research, such as you know, research into better understanding of disease or optimization of treatment. But it's a very unique situation that we find ourselves in here in, in, uh, in the arthritis community. Right. A quick comment to you both. This is obviously clinical trials and all that goes with it and the treatment and the care of patients in these complex diseases. This is an evolving field and Mm -hmm. making sure that uh, us patients, people out there, are keeping abreast of what's going on. You've made this point, both of you, very effectively. That's, That's obviously getting important. Now, it's time for a break once more. Uh, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Karen Arts and Linda Bennett. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 Community FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back 
to our listeners, to Family Caregivers Unite and Karen Arts and Linda Bennett. Our topic is clinical trials, benefits and protections. Let's talk about the protections required in clinical trials and how these are applied and, and assessed. Um, first of all, Karen, what processes are in place to protect study participants, the people who participate in clinical trials, why protection is important, and how, in broad terms, do you assess them? Karen. All right. Well, um, you, I'll start off by uh, talking about why protections are important, in my belief. Study participants, patients, um, you know, the, the people that are enrolled in the studies are volunteers. They, out of the goodness of their heart, give their consent to provide to provide them with experimental treatments or drugs or work with devices, and they volunteer their time, and they trust us to ensure that they're safe and that they're cared for. So that, to me, is a sacred trust, and anyone I know in clinical trials takes that very serious. So there's an, a lot of um, processes and policies in place to try and protect the rights and safety and well-being of patients that take part in clinical trials. And they also need to make sure that the trials are conducted to uh, strict scientific but also ethical principles. And so that they're run in an ethical manner and that patients are uh, not going to be harmed. So the very first process um, that I need to highlight, Linda will talk about this a little bit more, I believe, but uh, the very first one is called the patient's permission. It's called informed consent. Without permission, the patient's permission, we cannot and don't want to do anything to them that might potentially be dangerous. Um, in addition, there's a careful review and approval of the clinical trial protocol or the, the document that gives a detailed description of what happens to a patient in the study. And that review is done by two different panels. One is a panel that looks at the scientific component and ensures that the study is scientifically sound. The second review is done by what's called in Canada a research ethics board. In the U.S., it's referred to as the institutional review board. And the uh, REB, that ethics board, reviews all aspects of the trial to make sure that the patients will be protected before the study can even start. They also have to review trials while they're ongoing, at least once a year, once the trial's begun. And based on those reviews, they can decide whether the trial should continue as planned or whether changes should be made, all of it focused on improving the patient's protection. If a physician or a researcher is not following the protocol or if it looks like the trial appears to be causing unexpected harm, then the RIB can actually stop the study. So they follow a very strictly outlined and rigorous process, and they have a composition where, uh, you know, of, of expert in the field that... Uh, can provide the opinions that are required to make sound decisions. And then one other aspect that I want to highlight is once the trial is ongoing, um, the, the monitoring of patient safety can also be provided by what's called a Data Safety Monitoring Board, or a DSMB. That's a committee of doctors and statisticians and others who are independent of the people, organizations, and institutions that are sponsoring the study. They... Um, provide oversight for the trial, and they review all the interventions to make sure that uh, they keep track of what's happening and whether the trial should be stopped early because the results are so good or whether they need to uh, make modifications to make sure the patient is safe. So um, 
you know, the program is not long enough to discuss all the details of all these protections, but let's just suffice it to say that the protection of patient safety and well-being is very important, and I think it's central to what we do. And there are many ways uh, by which we achieve that and make sure that no harm's done, and hopefully uh, that gives you a bit of an idea. Thanks, Karen. That's a very thorough um, discussion uh, that shows that as if you like, a community of researchers. You're all taking your duties extremely seriously and you're taking it seriously provides the reassurance that your participants and the public are need and are looking for and that's the way you advance. So thank you for that. Sure. Now, I want to go to, to Linda, um, also talking about protections in a way. What, what does someone need to know ahead of participating in a study and how would the obtain that information, and what role do family caregivers play? Um, sure. I mean, I think I'll start with, with the role of um, caregivers first, because I think um, often in a, a situation where an individual is um, seeing a, a physician for a particular uh, illness, uh, a caregiver will uh, accompany that person. Uh, I know when my parents were unwell, I attended a lot of their appointments with them. I had my own uh, questions. I was welcomed into that discussion. I also kept track of things uh, for them and, and um, uh, became a bit of a recorder for that, that discussion because they were uh, anxious about their own well-being. Uh, for example, recently with my friend, her new diagnosis um, was quite overwhelming for all of us. And so when she was considering clinical trial participation, I read her consent form a number of times and we talked about um, what would be uh, required of her in that clinical trial. Her brother, um, uh, she's lucky enough to have a brother who's a physician, a very knowledgeable guy. He also provided uh, quite a bit of information and support. And so she really wanted to bounce this whole uh, idea of participation off of, um, off of her um, caregiver's off of the caregivers in, in her life or her family members and friends. And so in terms of what you need to know ahead of participating, in research we talk about informed consent, the informed consent process, and the informed consent form. These are terms that are often used in, in the early process or throughout a trial. And informed consent is essentially the process of learning and understanding everything you need to know about the study ahead of agreeing to participate in the study. And this would include all kinds of information related to the purpose of the study, uh, what's involved in participating, what's going to be asked of you in terms of visits and procedures, any potential risks and benefits of participating, and then as a participant, your rights and responsibilities during the trial. So ahead of that agreement to participate, it's very important that everyone understands exactly what's, in particular, the, the participant needs to understand exactly what's being asked of them uh, in the participation of the trial. And the process of informed consent is really an ongoing activity. It begins prior to involvement in the study, but really continues right through until the person completes the study or withdraws from the study. Each visit, each study visit, provides an opportunity to ask more questions, to obtain any new details that have become available about the study, and have any questions answered that you might have. It also provides an opportunity for the participant to withdraw consent and withdraw from the study. And it's so important, I think, to emphasize that 
that um, an individual has the right to refuse to take part or to stop taking part at any time without having a re- to provide a reason and without that affecting their medical care in any way. And so the key pieces of information about the study are, are written out in a document that's called the Informed Consent Form. And this document is signed by the participant and, and the investigator ahead of the study activity starting. And the participant gets to keep a copy of this form for later reference. And often um, participants are encouraged to read the form carefully, ask any questions, but take it home and discuss with family or friends or others in their environment, um, discuss the study with them and and make sure they understand completely um, what's going to happen when they are uh, participating in that. And consent forms are complicated. They're very complicated documents. Without a doubt, we could do a much better job of of making the written information easier to understand. Um, And if someone's dealing with a new diagnosis, I think this adds a layer of complexity. And so having that that family member there or that friend um, to really bounce ideas off of and discuss things and and be a bit of an advocate, um, maybe devil's advocate, and and really uh, help the person to work through what's required, I think is very important. Right. Now, just quickly, to go back to Karen and then Linda, what about privacy of the information that's gathered, the medical information? Karen, is that an issue that arises? And just very briefly, if it does, how do you deal with it? Well, privacy, of course, is very important. It's not just important in clinical trials. It's also important in healthcare in general. So there's very strict rules and regulations on how the information is protected and how uh, the uh, confidentiality of information that a patient provides is protected. So most institutions, or I would say each institution, has a privacy officer that will provide education and guidance to the employees in the organization to ensure that they really protect the, the, the privacy and the, the confidentiality of all the patient information. Um, it's probably a topic that you could host an entire show on, but I would want to reassure uh, anyone considering going in a clinical trial or entering a hospital that um, they try very hard to uh, follow all those rules and make sure that uh, privacy is protected. Linda, um, a particular question is when someone is kind of not an adult, an adolescent, for example, you know, this does happen in some of the rheumatic type diseases. Um, What about the decision making? Um, Does the individual decide or do the family caregivers decide or do they do it together? Just very quickly, Linda, what's the answer to that? Um, actually, probably Karen has more uh, expertise than I do in this area. Certainly, if the um, patient is a child, um, they're not in a position to uh, make decisions uh, uh, on their own, and their parents will be uh, the ones that do make that decision uh, in terms of participation. If it's uh, an adolescent, uh, that conversation around the study and participation uh, happens with the two of them together, uh, I think until the patient is the um, age of majority, and I'm not sure, Karen, is that 18? Yeah, that, you correct. know, and it's uh, that process is called assent rather than yeah. consent. So the ultimately the legally re- the legal representative for uh, somebody under age ultimately will make the decision, but assent, so the, the the child's opinion in what they want to do is taken very serious. So 
uh, family caregivers should make sure that they involve their children in the decision making uh, to participate in a trial. Uh, and then I, I, help? I think just Let- to, to add to that, uh, if a patient is underage at the start of the trial but becomes of age to consent uh, uh, during an ongoing trial, then I believe uh, my understanding is that process happens again and, and the um, newly of age individual is the one then that consents uh, going forward. Is that, Karen, is that your understanding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm afraid we've come to the end of this particular segment, but this is a very important discussion. And, you know, maybe we should do an episode on this whole issue of privacy. I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> now, let's take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Karen Arts and Linda Bennett. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood Hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, Back to Family Caregivers Unite. 
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Karen Arts and Linda Bennett. Our topic is clinical trials, benefits and protections. Now let's talk about the things that you both would like to do and see done to promote the benefits and protections of clinical trials. Starting with Linda, what more would you like to do and see done to promote the benefits and enhance the protections of clinical trials? Linda? In a nutshell, uh, you know, what we really need to do uh, uh, better than we're doing now is to engage the public. Uh, Research really does define and shape best practices in both disease prevention and management. And one of the areas I think where we could do a better job is the education of the public about the relevance of clinical research, including trials. So there are many resources available on the internet, but I think What's missing is that we haven't wrapped this up in a way that the public can actually easily access credible lay language content when they want to to get access to that. And then for people with specific diseases, I think it's very difficult to determine not only what research is ongoing in Canada, but, you know, it, it would be helpful to have that presented in the context of what's already known about the disease and why are these areas of of ongoing research important? What questions will these studies answer? And then if somebody wanted to participate in a particular project, tell them how they might go about doing that. And then I think another really key area where we fall short is the dissemination of the research findings and then the integration of these findings into policy and practice in Canada. I think it's very difficult, if not impossible, to make sense of the material that currently exists. Much of it's quite technical. It's not grounded in context that makes some sense to, uh, to the public. And, and I imagine you can speak to that as a, a former family physician trying to stay abreast of everything that was happening in, um, in the care of all of your patients. quite an overwhelming task. And I think we need to think a little bit about how to best engage the public in all aspects of research from helping to set the priorities to participation, to the utilization of the outcomes, and sort of create a bit of an accessible roadmap of sorts, I think, that the general public could follow, starting with a broad understanding of research and then moving to a level that might be of particular interest or would affect the individual. Right. Karen, what's your message for parents of children who are approached about the children's participation in clinical trials in cancer research? Karen? Well, my message would be that uh, there's a lot of questions that that family caregivers or patients or their significant others may have. One of the key things to do is to ensure that your questions are answered. And sometimes the, the challenge in studies is that the answer is not available. So, for example... Questions about, you know, is will the experimental, are a treatment be better than the standard treatment or are there more side effects in the experimental arm? The problem is that we often don't know that yet until the study results becomes available and that's why we need clinical trials to help us determine what, uh, what those things are. Um, the same with, with getting the results of the study and is there a direct benefit? Hopefully, participation in the clinical trial gives the patient or gives the child of a family caregiver a chance to receive new and innovative treatments that they otherwise wouldn't be able to receive. They are at the standard of care or hopefully better. That's why we're doing this study. Um, and they have to understand and know that we're trying to do whatever we can 
to make sure that they're safe. And um, our current successes are really due to the many, many people, adults, children, who have come and continue to, to participate in clinical trials. All those new uh, results build on studies that were done before, and that information is collected and analyzed and worked with and ultimately will benefit everyone so that the outcome of treatment um, becomes better um, as we have more patients enroll in trials. And in particular in pediatrics, it's obviously it's a very difficult decision to make um, if you don't know and you don't want to hurt your child. I would say that by um, being aware of clinical trials, what, which ones are available um, and where to find them, they can then ask lots of questions and get as much information as they can to make an informed decision. And sometimes that decision is not to participate because it's not for them or for their child. Uh, other times it may be the right thing, but having the information to make that decision is the key and to uh, ensure that the, the patient, whether that's a child or an adult, really needs to share the information with others and together make a decision to then decide whether they would like to do this. Ultimately, clinical trials lead to new treatments, and so we need people to enroll, and we want to find a way to make it as as, as um, smooth as possible for everyone enrolled with while functioning within all the regulations to make sure that their safety and well-being is protected. So I would say information is the key. I'd like, um, Karen, just to pick up on that and also the thing, the, the points that Linda just made, and that is information, knowing what's in store, knowing the benefits that are going to accrue, knowing why the research is needed and understanding the potential that the research has. And what I think that points to is this whole issue of making things understandable. I can imagine the document of however many pages it was written in a mixture of medicalese and legalese. We have to get around that. We have to be better at explaining things in a way that people who are, let's be honest, stressed um, and perhaps not always listening to us as carefully as we would wish, so that they really do understand everything about it, get all the information they need to know, so that their decisions, whether to participate or not, um, and those kinds of decisions, serious decisions, whether their children should participate, um, are all made with as full of can I call it this way, as a fuller hand of information as is possible. And one of the things that I would like to just um, put on the table, so to speak, is the idea of what in healthcare you both know as clinical practice guidelines. These are, in fact, documents written for healthcare professionals like you, you are and like I used to be, saying, everybody, People who know this subject, who've understood it, have looked at it, and here's their best advice under the circumstances. Um, that's useful, and I think if we could start to write things like that for people involved in research, clinical trials, and this kind of thing, I think it would be very, very helpful. And it also would be helpful if it could sort out <laughs> the privacy complexities. Now, that said... Unfortunately, we've come to the end of this fabulous, superbly useful episode. So thank you to Karen and Linda. Thank you for sharing with us your experience and, talk, 
highlighting your insights and giving us advice. And so for everybody's sake, I wish you every success in your work. Keep at it because it's important. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be Next Steps in Preventing Suicide in Teenagers and Young Adults. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 